Hello and welcome once more to Evangelion interpreting scripture and life. And as promised, I thought it would make sense to do a final session just wrapping up the material on Galatians. I certainly hope this has been uh, an enjoyable journey. I hope it's made sense. I hope it's encouraged you to think about Galatians and indeed to think about Paul in newer and uh, more creative and exciting and refreshing ways. I've tried to present a case for what I think is going on in Galatians, both uh, theologically, ecclesiologically, and sociologically, as well as uh, practically. Um, and I'm not claiming that my way of reading things is the only way, or even um, the, the best way, or even a good way, but it's how I understand the letter. I think there are particular uh, motifs and tropes which stand out, uh, and I think some of those motifs haven't been given sufficient profile in the scholarship on Galatians over the years. Um, so I've tried to fill in those blanks, tried to plug those holes, and I hope it's provided something of a meaningful uh, rendition of part of Paul's enterprise to bring the message of Jesus to the non-Jewish world. I've done um, a, a couple of things with this reading, which I just want to wrap up briefly now. I've suggested that one of the key underpinning ideas of Galatians uh, is the motif of life emerging from death. On three occasions out of the four times where Paul mentions crucifixion, he's not talking directly about the crucifixion of Jesus, although he's quite clearly attempting to connect one idea with the crucifixion of Jesus. In Galatians 2.19, Paul claims himself to have been co-crucified with Christ. In Galatians 5.24, speaking about the Gentile believers, he says that they've crucified the flesh with, uh, along with the uh, associated lusts and passions, uh, those lusts and passions associated with the flesh. And, and by flesh, I mean that susceptible part of the human condition, the part of the human condition which is still susceptible to sin and death and decay. And then finally in chapter 6 in verse 14, uh, as we talked about in the last podcast, Paul says that in some sense he's been crucified to the world, to the cosmos, and that the cosmos itself has been crucified to him. And in each of these formulations, Paul includes some kind of a life motif. So he was co-crucified with Christ in 2.19 in order that he might live to God. The Gentile believers in Galatians 5.24 crucified the flesh and now live by spirit. And the cosmos having been crucified to Paul now emerges as a new creation in Galatians 6.15, one where the standard ethnic polarities of Jew versus non-Jew or circumcised versus uncircumcised no longer hold sway. They no longer have any power or influence or domination um, in the realm of God's people. So crucifixion in Galatians in some way is intended to stand for death as a prelude to new life or to revivification, uh, as I've often called it uh, in my work. When Paul thinks of life emerging from death, there is, of course, one key event, which is the superlative life emerging from death event in Paul's experience. 
And this, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus and Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, one which he describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as one which was uh, abnormal compared to the resurrection appearances to the other apostles, was the key turning point in Paul's life. This encounter with the risen Christ changed Paul in ways uh, which even go beyond anything he himself tells us. So this is the fundamental resurrection, the fundamental revivification event in uh, Galatians and indeed in Paul's experience. And Paul is in some way attempting to connect the experience of believers in justification with the Christ event. So for Paul, justification itself appears to be an event hallmarked by life emerging from death. He sees justification as a revivification event. It is new life uh, uh, imbuing death and something new emerging from it. So Jesus has experienced death and resurrection and all people who are in Christ or in Jesus themselves experience a kind of death and new life. And that's what Paul seems to think uh, uh, justification is. Now, part of the reason that I've argued over the years that these ideas haven't been given the requisite profile in Galatians is precisely because Paul hardly ever mentions the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he only ever mentions it in the first line. And even then, it's a way of describing God. He describes God as the one having raised Jesus from the dead. However, in so doing, Paul, I think, is alerting readers to the importance of resurrection for his argument. In Galatians 1 verse 4, he describes the risen Christ as the one who is orchestrating mankind's rescue from this age of the present evil. So not only is resurrection something which has happened to Jesus, it's now happening through him. Through him, new life is being given to people. And that appears to be their their rescue. This is how people are being rescued from the age of the present evil. They're being taken out of this realm of death and brought into this realm of new life. They're becoming new people, becoming new creations. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where uh, he says that a, a new creation uh, is emerging. And, and there he seems to be talking about uh, individuals, uh, whereas in Galatians 6.15, he's talking uh, about the created order itself. I've argued on the basis of Galatians 3.21, which I see as a very pivotal um, verse, that the key incapacity of the law is its failure to be able to make something alive. That seems to be the unique dispensation of the Holy Spirit. So because the law cannot make something alive, the law cannot justify. Uh, this seems to be uh, in my view, the clearest statement that Paul ever makes for why the law of Moses cannot bring people into right relation with God. To be in right relation to God, you must have moved from death to life. You must be brought to life. But the law cannot make something alive. The law is something you can live by as the people uh, who had um, 
been rescued from captivity in Egypt experienced themselves. Um, this goes back to Paul's uh, quotation of Leviticus 18 verse 5. And if they obeyed the law, then they would live comfortably um, as, as newly freed people. But to actually become the end time people of God, to be part of this universal family uh, which he describes as the children of Abraham, the ultimate people of God, the people of God which include all nations, not just the elect, but all people, when all people would become um, a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, as uh, is suggested in First Peter 2. The time that that would happen would be with all people, with all nations, and that would require this, this new endowment of life, and this endowment of life comes from the resurrected Christ himself. Paul says that he had been co-crucified with Christ. He had uh, uh, died to the law uh, and he no longer lived. But Christ lived in him. And that which he now lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. That's Galatians 2 verses 19 through 20. Paul had become conscious that he himself was only alive because the risen Christ lived in him. The old Paul who was uh, defined by his commitment to the Torah, who identified as the people of God because of the Torah, was now renewed. He was now alive in a new, unprecedented way, energized and animated by the power of the risen Christ. And this um, was not just true of Paul as um, indicative of uh, Jews in Christ, but was true of Gentiles in Christ, whom had the, the, the flesh crucified with its associated lusts and passions, and now alive by the Spirit, and now having their moral compass directed by the Spirit, would live by the Spirit. And these were the people of God. The other major claim I've made is that Galatians attests to this new life also representing freedom from slavery. The Jews, Paul says, somewhat controversially, were in slavery under the law. The Gentiles enslaved by idolatry. But because of the risen Christ, they had both now been jointly rescued. Remember the beginning of Galatians 4? Um, their, their rescue happened at the same time. The, the people of, of Israel were still too immature to receive the inheritance and truly become the people of God, the end time people of God, and so needed the law to steer them. Gentiles showed their immaturity and showed their lack of readiness to inherit this great gift by the fact they still worshipped things that they had created. But together, because of the risen Christ, they all could become sons of God, crying, Abba, Father, because the Spirit was in their hearts. And I've suggested that the blueprint of this idea comes from the prophetic material, particularly from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They both spoke of internalization. And this great moment of internalization, I think, is, is demonstrated in Galatians. It's an internalization, firstly, of the spirit. We see that in Galatians 4, 6. The spirit enters the hearts of the people who now cry, Abba, Father, they are no longer slaves, but sons. But we also see the internalization of the law. 
Paul describes it as the law of Christ in Galatians 6 verse 2. It's the law, it's all of God's demands being observed in a new way because the Spirit is now guiding our moral uh, thinking and our, our way of being in this world. The Spirit has made the very laws and statutes and commands of God an internalized reality. We know what God wants. We know now the mind and the heart and the vision of God, not because of anything that we've done, but because the Holy Spirit has made those things apparent deep within us. And Paul describes this this um, uh, this this move, this fulfilment, as the undoing of a curse, the the curse um, in in the uh, book of Deuteronomy uh, is the curse of exile, uh, and he describes the curse of exile in Deuteronomy further as death, and so these things you see tie together, just like we see um, the people of God in exile in Ezekiel 37 as dead bones in the valley which are revitalized by the Spirit and brought to new life. Well, that's the same thing. If the exile is the curse, then the undoing of the curse is the bringing of life. And so how does life undo the curse? Well, it's the, the risen life of Christ that undoes the curse of exile and brings people into the real homeland. The real homeland isn't relocation geographically, but relocation uh, in God. It's bringing the people back to God. And so the true end of the exile, the true restoration, is not for the people to be brought back from captivity in Babylon, but rather to be brought back from the wilderness of sin and into a real relationship with God. So Jesus undoes the curse of exile. Jesus undoes the curse of death by imbuing this resurrection life. And this is further demonstrated by the birth of Isaac. It's made explicit in Romans 4, where the deadness of Abraham and Sarah's reproductive apparatus still produces life through the birth of Isaac. And Paul um, describes and compares that with the resurrection of Jesus. It's another um, instantiation of life emerging from death. But we see that again in the allegory in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, the birth of Isaac is said to be according to spirit, because in the same way Paul wants you to see that Isaac's birth wasn't just a regular birth, it was birth according to the promise of new life that God had made right from Genesis 15 verse 6, which Paul quotes uh, once in Galatians and three or four times in, in Romans, um, that, that, that birth uh, of Isaac was to be understood like a resurrection miracle. Abraham was so old and his wife Sarah was so old that their reproductive apparatus was effectively dead. That's what he's, again, he says that explicitly in Romans 4. And yet life was able to come from there in the form of Isaac. And so Isaac's birth was itself a resurrection miracle. And so I think Paul looked at, at all the um, instances of new life emerging from death in the Hebrew scriptures as effectively um, premonitions of the resurrection of Jesus. In the, in the Old Testament, what you had were pictures of new life coming from death as almost metaphors. They were symbols of, of, of other events like the restoration uh, of God's people from captivity uh, to some pagan power. 
But now what had happened, now what Paul had experienced wasn't a metaphorical resurrection, which was used to describe some other event. Paul experienced a literal resurrection through which all these other resurrection events now could be interpreted and understood. They were ways of picturing the great act of God that was going to change everything and put the world to rights and reconcile all people and bring all people um, back to God. One of the ways that I've started to think about this, and hopefully I'll get a chance to expand upon it at some stage, is that it makes sense sometimes, I think, to really understand the work of God, to actually start with the solution and work backwards. Often what we do when we read Genesis is that we we, we, we try to make sense of the mess of the world that humankind made and then work our way forward to a solution. But the truth is, reading um Genesis 1 through 3, even reading Genesis 3.15, the so-called Proto-Evangelium, which talks about the this, this descendant of Eve who would um, crush the serpent even though the serpent would bruise his heel, and that's often seen as an early prediction of the Messiah. But it's very difficult to go from that story to the idea of a Jew in Jerusalem or just outside Jerusalem being crucified um, at some inordinate point in the future. How do we go from the, the mess that Adam and Eve made of disobeying God and listening to the tempter or, and, 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 and uh, eating the forbidden fruit and introducing death into the world, how do we go from that to the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, the truth is you don't. If you were to start with the story in Genesis and ask yourself, well, how is God going to put this to rights? There is no way that you could have predicted the gospel story. And of course, this is why Jesus's apostles were always so confused when he talked about resurrection. How on earth was Jesus being nailed to a cross and then mysteriously coming back to life again, really going to be the answer to Israel's problems? How was it going to change the fact that they were still the subjects of pagans? How was it going to change their economic condition and their social condition? And how on earth would it put the world to rights? How could sin be dealt with? Well, I think a good thing to do is to start with the answer. The answer is resurrection. And so what's the question? Well, what is resurrection? It's new life overwhelming death. And so the question we've got to say, well, then what does sin have to do with death? When we ask the question that way, then suddenly the events in the Garden of Eden start to make sense. Well, if God is fixing the world with new life, then somewhere along the line, death must have taken hold. And how did death take hold? Well, death took hold because of human sin. That's the story of Genesis. The story of Genesis is how death came into the world. How did death and decay and sin and estrangement from God and shame and guilt and all these things become part of the human condition? They did so when mankind disobeyed God. And so the only way to reverse those effects is to reverse and to overwhelm and destroy death itself. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be defeated was death. And who is the one who has overcome death? Who is the one who has destroyed death? Who is the one to whom death bowed? That's Jesus. 
this is the great story of which you and I have become a part. And this is where, as believing people, life-giving is what we must now do to follow God. Everywhere we go, we must be life bearers. The effects of sin and death and decay are all around us. Whether it's someone who's being abused in their household, whether it's injustice in some kind of a political context, whether it's uh, children being abandoned or abused, whether it's racism or sexism or marginalization of any kind, the effects of death and sin are all around us. And as those people who are bearers of that great energy, that life-giving energy of the risen Christ, everywhere we go, we must be life bearers. People who bring the life of God into the death and decay, which is the effect of sin in every arena and context that we experience it. Whether it's under our own roof, whether it's in our workplaces or in our places of study, or whether we're just out in the going to the supermarket or whatever we're doing we are bearers of that great life energy which connects people with god and which reverses the effects of sin that indeed is what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ and so i call upon all of those of you listening to this podcast who are believing people you have a great responsibility you have that great spark of life, that life energy, which must be exposed to the entire world and be um, the remedy everywhere. The effects of sin and decay and death are experienced by those people whom God has created and loves so much and so desires to be reconciled to him. So be life bearers. That is the message of Galatians. That is the message of Paul. That is indeed the very heart of the gospel, that the death and resurrection of Jesus has given us, you and I, the power, the energy and the life to reverse the effects of sin.